Well, it's great to see all of you. Uh, really glad that we can be together in this way. And uh, though we can't see you, it's great to have you with us uh, online, folks. Really glad that you're here today, too. Um, we're starting a new sermon series today, and it's called Towards a Commons Politics. And some of you may be wondering, well, why this series? And my quick answer is because Eric Hansen gave it to us. No, but in true, in fairness, uh, it's, it's a timely sermon series, isn't it? It's 16 days until the election. It's not only a timely series, I think it's a necessary series. Our country and our church are deeply divided. How do we address the elephant, or rather even the donkey, in the room? How do we sketch out the idea of faith and politics and open the door for a civil conversation? We need to learn these skills, especially now, but we need them at all times. And so, a series like this is meant to help us, help us get down that road a bit. But as we begin, let's be clear, a series like this isn't about a few things. It isn't about us preachers using the bully pulpit to push our pet ideas. That's not only unwise, that's illegal. A series like this isn't about pushing anyone's partisan agenda. That also would be illegal from a pulpit right now. A series like this isn't about influencing you to vote a certain way. That is your responsibility between you and God as you seek to live out your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what a series like this isn't about. But what is it about? What seems to me a series like this is about sketching out some basic understandings of how Jesus did and didn't address politics. A series like this is about dispelling some misunderstandings we may have when it comes to faith and politics. A series like this is about confronting some of our blind spots that we may have. Above all, a series like this is meant to help us integrate our faith into every realm of our lives, including our politics. Well, I want to be honest with you, there are three subjects that I think, as a preacher, I hesitate to preach on, and you, as a congregation, may uh, struggle to listen to. There are three main areas. I wonder if you could guess them. But they go like this, money, sex, and power, especially the power of politics. Never uh, in any other subjects do I see a congregation get quiet like that until after the sermon and it's time to write an email. So I don't know about you, but I come to a series like this needing a lot of prayer. So let's begin in prayer, shall we? Our Lord, we thank you that your word addresses all aspects of our lives. We're thankful that you uh, long to grow us in Jesus Christ. And we offer ourselves, we offer this sermon, we offer this time together now that your spirit may grow us and teach us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, our two scriptures today show us two challenges facing the church. The challenge of holiness and the challenge of mission. First, the challenge of holiness. Our first reading is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6. And in it, he does the most interesting thing. He's teaching them in a certain way. And then all of a sudden, he interrupts his train of thought. And he has a sort of uh, non sequitur. And the non sequitur is meant, we think, to educate Christians on not blending too closely with the unbelieving world. Let's read it together. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14. 
Here Paul writes, and this is the challenge of holiness. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. This is the challenge of holiness. Our next text, however, highlights the opposite challenge, which is the challenge of mission. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, calling the church, his people, to be salt and light. Let's listen to this word. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, this is the challenge of mission, engaging our world, not running from it, engaging our world with the life-changing elements of the gospel being salt and light. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, you read your Bible or you study a bit of church history and you learn that God's people, whether Israel or the church, have always struggled in this tension between holiness and mission. On the one side is holiness. We worship and serve a holy God, a God who says to the people of Israel in the book of Leviticus numerous times, you are to be holy, for I am holy. Israel was not to mix intimately with the pagan world around it. Doing so would dilute their commitment and corrupt their character. Time after time in the Old Testament, when Israel mixed too closely with their pagan neighbors, They forgot God. They lost their distinctiveness. They lost their mission. Holiness was key for God's people in worship and in lifestyle and in God's calling to be a light to the nations. But the temptation was this, to pull away from the world and no longer engage it in mission. And by the time of Jesus, a number of strands of Judaism had perfected this sort of holy withdrawal from the world. We think of the Pharisees, right? We think of the Essenes, the monastic community on the shores of the Dead Sea. They pulled away from the world, wanting to be uncontaminated by them. This is a temptation of escapism. Escapism. It's when following God makes you escape the world and its troubles just to preserve your holiness. And this tendency then pursued God's people through the New Testament and into the church and into the church today. As Christians, some of us don't want to mix with the world, to have any contact with its fallenness. It's easy for us to come to church and escape the world. We can argue that the church shouldn't mess with politics, that the church is where we come to get away from politics. Don't talk politics, some say in the church. 
Jesus isn't about politics, and neither is my faith. This is escapism. But an opposite temptation also faces God's people. It's not escapism. It's enmeshment. That's where we so blend with the world and its systems and its ideologies and its ways that we become indistinguishable from the world. We lose our distinctiveness as God's people. The unique life of Jesus in us gets lost. Enmeshment is where our Christianity has a color or a label. It's red or blue, conservative or progressive, donkey or elephant, right or left. These define us instead of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Enmeshment is the opposite of escapism, and both are deadly in the life of a Christian. The challenge we face is what I would call the holiness two-step. The holiness two-step. It's how we seek to be in the world, but not of the world. Do you know what I mean? It's where we strike the right balance, being in the public square, witnessing for Christ, being salt and light, keeping our distinctiveness without isolating into holy huddles. Do you follow me? Holiness has its place, always. But the temptation for us is to become holier than thou. Or some have said, to become so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. And Jesus challenged us in the Sermon on the Mount. He called us to be salt, penetrating the world, bringing healing and wholeness and health. He called us to be light, illuminating the darkness of the world and its injustices and its unrighteousness. We need to remain salty. We need to remain bright in our witness. And mission moves us out of the holy huddle. To use an old book title by Becky Pippert, we're to come out of the salt shaker and into the world. And our challenge is always how to be in the world but not of the world. To be salt and light and not lose our saltiness or let our light dim. So we need to shun escapism, shun enmeshment, and pursue something else. Thoughtful engagement. And we can begin this thoughtful engagement by asking a few questions. And here I am indebted to uh, an old mentor of mine, Dr. John Stott. John Stott, as many of you know, was uh, a leading British evangelical. He died uh, not too long ago. Stott was uh, second only, really, to Billy Graham in the world of of English-speaking Christianity. Uh, Wonderful man. Uh, I got to uh, know him a a while ago. I'll tell you more about that in a bit. But he wrote this book called Issues Facing Christians Today, and I commend it to you. It's still available. You can get this book, Issues Facing Christians Today. And the first question that John Stott encourages us to ask is this. Was Jesus political? Was Jesus political? And it all depends on your definition of politics. In a narrow sense, was Jesus political? The answer is no. Politics narrowly defined is the science of government. It's concerned with developing and adopting specific policies based on philosophical convictions that are made into law. Let's be clear. Jesus never formed a political party. Jesus never adopted or advocated for a specific program. He never organized a political protest. And he resisted those who were trying to push him to become a political messiah. 
In a narrow sense, Jesus was not political. But in a broad sense, was Jesus political? Oh, yes, you bet. He was political because politics is based on a Greek word, polis, which means city, and polites, which means citizens. Politics, broadly defined, is about living together as citizens in a city. It has to do with how we conduct ourselves in all walks of life. Stott says, in the other broader sense of the word political, Jesus' whole ministry was political. Let that sink in. Jesus shared all aspects of our human community, and the kingdom of God that Jesus preached, inaugurated, and developed a whole new way of engaging the world and living in it. Think for a minute about our Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. It's the gateway to becoming a Christian. Jesus is Lord. Do you know that that's a political statement? It is, because in the first century in the Roman Empire, Roman subjects were forced to confess, Caesar is Lord. Caesar runs our lives. Caesar should determine all that we do as human beings. And the Christian said, no, Jesus is Lord. That is a political statement. And it has power and it is controversial. And Jesus, after all, was killed for it. Jesus, you must remember, died on a cross, which is the Roman form of capital punishment for political insurrectionists. Jesus as Lord is a deeply political statement, and the Romans knew it. And Stott writes this. This is a great quote. I want you to take a look at it. Although the teaching of Jesus was not overtly political, it subverted unjust political structures, challenged oppression, and promised people that there was a new kingdom characterized by justice in which the truth, rather than political promises, set people free. That is a money quote, isn't it? That's a good quote. You want to hang on to that one. Our faith has political ramifications because Jesus and his kingdom reform and renew all of life. Jesus and his kingdom affects all our lives, not just the spiritual or the religious. It affects how we interact in our neighborhoods. It affects how we treat the poor. It affects how we care for those victims of injustice. It affects how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, in the public square, the schools, wherever we find ourselves, even how we vote. Broadly speaking, Jesus was political. And we're left to wonder, are his politics ours? That leads us to a second question. Should Christians get involved in politics? Well, if you study church history, particularly the evangelical revivals of the 18th and 19th century in Great Britain and in this country, if you think about people like John and Charles Wesley, the great 18th century revivalists and evangelists whose spiritual ministries stopped England from being embroiled in bloodshed, much like they had in France at the time. If you think and learn of the Clapham sect in England in the 19th century, deeply devoted Christians like William Wilberforce, who influenced the British Parliament to abolish slavery. People like Lord Shaftesbury, who reformed factory working conditions and child labor laws. When you learn of people like Theodore Sedgwick Wright, 
Princeton Seminary's first African-American graduate and a pastor of the First Colored Presbyterian Church of New York City, the one who founded the Anti-Slavery Society of America. When you think of all of this, you realize that God's people have applied their faith in politics with world-changing effects. Christians have been deeply involved in politics. Their biblical convictions have led them to engage the world and to confront its injustices based on the Word of God. So should Christians be involved in politics? Yes, if they're the politics of Jesus. Friends, holiness is tricky. Being in the world but not of the world is tough. We often fail. We yield to the temptations of escapism or enmeshment. Instead, what we need is thoughtful engagement in every area of life, including our politics. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In 1985 to 1986, the year after I graduated from Cal Berkeley, I spent a wonderful year in London, England, working in the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, founded by John Stott. I got to learn from him and get to know him. And one thing that was a highlight for me was he invited me to be in a small group with him. It was a Christian mind reading group. Now get this, we did what Stott was so famous for. He did what he called dual listening, listening to the Word of God on the one hand and listening to the world on the other. Bringing the complexities and uh, challenge of the Scripture to the complexities and challenges of the world. And in our Christian mind reading group, we not only read theological works, we read best-selling novels, we went to plays, we watched movies, and then we would get together and we'd discuss these from a Christian vantage point. And the goal was to develop a Christian mind that thought uniquely about these things and refused to descend into categories of left and right. Friends, we need to develop the mind of Jesus Christ more now than ever not to descend into political platitudes or, or, or proof-texting Bible quotes. We need to go deeper, be more thoughtful, so that when we engage, we engage distinctively as Christians with the mind of Jesus Christ. And so let us focus on Jesus, immerse ourselves in His life, His example, His teaching in the Gospels. And we need to know enough of church history to know that no political group ever has a monopoly on the truth of Jesus and the truth of the kingdom of God. We need to do these things and we need to pray. Many of you I know have approached me about wanting and urging all of us to pray. Well, we want to make sure you know that on November 3rd, Election Day, we will be having an online virtual prayer vigil. And I urge all of you who are listening to, to be a participant in that, praying, praying for our nation, praying for people, praying for all these things. Let me pray briefly and then we'll continue in worship and Dave will pray more deeply for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are with us, that you are risen, and that your truth has the power to change lives. And we pray that you would continue your good work of changing us to be more and more faithful disciples. Lord, hear our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.